Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, we have some Bibles that are marked at 1 John. Anybody who needs a Bible, just get uh, these fellows' attention as they go back. They'll get a Bible to you. You can keep that Bible. We want everybody to own one. 1 John 3. We were created to belong. God pronounced at the beginning of creation that it was not good that humanity be alone. He wanted his earth populated, so he told the first man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. This innate desire to belong causes people to get together for just about anything. You can belong to a club, the Elks Club, the Moose Lodge. Join a group centered around an activity, a bowling league, a sewing guild, line dancing. When I was in high school, I was on the basketball team, not because I was any good, but just because I wanted to be a part of what was going on. Now, these are all, as far as I know, pretty harmless activities, though I admit I have no earthly idea what happens at an Elks or a Moose meeting. But sociologists say that it's the longing to belong that sometimes motivates people to do things that are not so wholesome, positive, things like joining a gang. And once joined, the loyalty to the gang is fierce. One of the things that made the mafia so powerful was its ability to enforce loyalty to the so-called family. Some of you might remember the serial comedy Cheers, whose opening song said, Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where people can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. God created the desire to belong. And that's why it's a universal human motivation. But we somehow think we can satisfy our emptiness apart from the one who gave the desire. And so that great theologian, Billy Joel, was right when he said that those who gathered in a bar where he's the piano man, he said they're sharing a drink they call loneliness. But it's better than drinking alone. Cheers. You can be around people and still be quite lonely. And that's because our deepest, most profound estrangement is not from other people, but from God. When we see that the bad news in our lives is not first sociological, but rather theological, then we will begin to appreciate the good news, the gospel, because it's our most fundamental and primary relationship that the gospel solves. And as a result of solving that most basic issue, it has profound effects on every area of life. But until we see the problem accurately, we will not have a full appreciation for the solution that is the gospel. Now, we've seen in prior weeks that our condition is so desperate before we come to God through Jesus Christ that the Bible says we were dead in our sins. And so this required that God do a unilateral work on our dead, lifeless souls so that we hear the call of the gospel message and we're given spiritual life. 
We saw two weeks ago that in the life and death of Jesus, God has done all that's necessary to give us positive standing before him. Through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the penalty of our sin has been paid. And we're seen as perfect before God because Jesus' perfect life is applied to us. And so it is certainly true and blessed to say Jesus died for us. But it is also true and blessed to say Jesus lived for us. And that's why we define the gospel as it appears at the top of the insert in your program. If you don't have that out, I encourage you to take it out. And there we say the gospel is the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now thus far in this series on the gospel, we've seen three dimensions of the precious jewel that is the gospel. The first three that are filled in for you on that insert. On the far left you see that the gospel includes our effect effectual calling from God and being given new life in regeneration and justification. So God calls us and regenerates us and justifies us and therefore we're saved when we come to Christ in faith, believing that we can do nothing for ourselves and accepting that He has done for us what we could not. And yet many of us stop there. And when we do, it causes us to fail to see the full riches of the gospel. We fail to see the gospel as the total solution to our problem that it truly is. Many of us think of the gospel as something we heard and responded to in the past, but it has no relevance for us after that. And so we have a truncated, incomplete view of the gospel. We see it only as a door that you walk through in order to become a Christian. And so in this view, the gospel is only for unbelievers. Once you become a Christian, you don't need it anymore, except to share it with people who are still outside the door. But the gospel is like a diamond, which can be viewed from several angles in order to see its brilliance in a new and different light. So the Bible speaks of the gospel in terms of riches. Paul, who wrote a good portion of the second part of your Bible, the New Testament, said this, I became a servant of this gospel to preach the boundless riches of Christ. You see, the gospel is not only for eternal life. The gospel is for what the Bible calls the abundant life as well. The gospel is the fuel that fires the engine of the Christian life. Now, how is that? Again, that chart that is in your on your insert and on the screen notice again the chart shows the dimensions of the gospel the first two items calling and regeneration give us the ability that we did not have to truly hear and receive the truth of the gospel message having done that there are benefits that we receive beginning with that third item that we saw two weeks ago justification we saw then that we're given a new record for before god a perfect record because Christ's life is counted to me. Now that justification and the other items that follow that we're going to see beginning today and over the next few weeks, adoption, sanctification, glorification. These all have practical significance for us today in the here and now in how we live this side of heaven. So let me give you an example from justification. The new record I have in being justified before God means I no longer have to pretend that I'm better than I really am. 
That's a real-world effect on you and on me because we have been justified, declared righteous before God. I no longer have to act like I'm better than I really am. I no longer have to cover it because Jesus has covered it. I can be honest about my sin and my struggles and know that I still have Christ's righteousness credited to me despite my struggles. How many Christians pretend week after week that they're better than they really are? And what an unnecessary burden of guilt we carry because we hide rather than deal with our sin. And so we feel like week after week, a hypocrite, as we put on our holy costume and come to church. I wonder how many of us feel that way right now. And that's why we've called this mini-series The Treasure of the Gospel. Today we're going to see another aspect of the jewel of the gospel that has real-world significance. The fourth item in the list on your insert, and that is adoption. The gospel is good news in part because it means that those of us who were at one time hopeless in our condition and helpless to save ourselves, who were indeed God's enemies because of our sin, the gospel says we are now part of God's family. So that the estrangement from God with which we come into the world is reconciled. The Bible speaks of that aspect of the gospel this way. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Now, author Jerry Bridges says his wife has an eye for beauty and she has an excitable personality. And frequently, as they're driving along, she'll say, look at that. She'll say that when she sees a beautiful sunset, a bank of snowy clouds or a gorgeous fall tree. And if she were using the King James manner of speech that we have for you on the screen, that's from the New King James Version, she might say, behold, what a beautiful tree. But whether it's the King James or contemporary English, in either case, she wants to get his attention. Normally, the word behold simply means to see or to gaze on. But when it's used in the Bible as a command, it means to get someone's attention. And that's the sense in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Only there it's saying, not look at that, but rather think of this. It's saying, stop. Consider this astonishing fact. God loves us so much that we are called his children. And it's true. We really are his children, John says. And so I asked you to turn to 1 John 3. And most of you have in front of you, and the Bibles that were distributed are what are called the New International Version that we normally normally use here. And the NIV translators sought to capture the force of this amazing statement with the wording in verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Now by the combination of the word lavish and then the exclamation mark at the end, They did their best to get us to stop and to consider these amazing words. So what is John, the one who wrote this saying? What is it that John is so excited about? It's the truth that all believers are God's children. Bridges explains it well when he says, think of that. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, you're a child of God, a son or daughter of the creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe. 
Now, it's true that sometimes our circumstances or even our behavior can obscure the fact that we are children of God, but it's important that we keep this truth constantly before us. Why? What's the big deal? Why is John so excited about a truth that we take so often for granted? Well, first, it's because of who we once were. Consider that every sin we commit, every sin, is an act of cosmic treason against the sovereign authority of God. Because of that, our condition was like that of a condemned rebel who's tried to assassinate the king and to overthrow his government. And so there we sat on death row, condemned as rebels, awaiting our execution. But instead of the death we deserve, thanks be to God, we're made sons and daughters of the very king whom we rebelled against. And instead of death, we get eternal life. Instead of wrath, we receive his favor. Instead of eternal ruin, we are made heirs of God, and the Bible says co-heirs with Christ. And all of this happened without our doing a single thing to earn the king's favor. We're making any attempt on our part to make restitution for our rebellion. His son, Jesus Christ, has done it all for us. The gospel is indeed good news if properly understood. And so recall from two weeks ago that from chapter 3 of Romans, we looked at that 20 cent term justification. And we saw that justification is an act of God by which he forgives all our sins, all our sins, past, present and future. And he accepts us as righteous in his sight, not because we actually are righteous in our experience. None of us is. But he accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the perfect righteousness of Christ that is credited to us by God and received by us through faith. Justification is a legal declaration by God acting in his capacity as the supreme judge. It's a legal act resulting in new legal standing before God. We have been acquitted before God, justified. Now, that's something objective and external to us, but it makes a subjective and internal difference within us. The knowledge that we're fully pardoned and have a perfect record means, among other things, that when, not if, we fall, we do not despair as if all is lost. And likewise, friends, in adoption that we're going to consider today, our adoption into the family of God is something that happens outside of us. But the reality of it has effects inside of us. Just as justification means I have a new record and therefore I don't need to pretend. Adoption means I have a new family and I don't need to perform. I'll still be in the family quite apart from my performance. And many Christians believe their standing with God depends on how well they perform. If I do well, I'll have a relationship with God. If I don't do well, God will abandon me. But adoption means we're part of God's family and we will never be disinherited. Thanks be to God. So when, not if, I fail to perform as I should and I sin, I do not fear my position with God. I am still and will always be his child. Consider this. We saw a few weeks ago the item on the insert that is part of the gospel called regeneration. And that's God giving us a a new heart. 
And we saw at that time that regeneration means to give life. It's the same thing as being born again. So now get this. Those who believe in Jesus are both born into the family of God and adopted into the family of God. Born in and adopted in. Now why does the Bible teach both? After all, in a human family, a child can't be both born and adopted by the same parents. But with God, we're both born of him and adopted by him. In this book of 1 John, the phrase born of God is used seven times, always to refer to evidences that we belong to God. That's because just as human parents pass on characteristics to their children, so also those born of God begin to bear his resemblance. We begin to see godly character qualities develop and mature. And as a result, God is willing to take us into his home, his family, as it were. Even though we were condemned rebels, we've been born again and we no longer have the heart of a rebel. God gives us a new heart and then invites us into his home. So we are born of God, but we are also adopted of God. And the Bible uses this very language of adoption. Romans chapter 8, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And again, in Galatians chapter 4, God sent his son born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And that passage goes on to say, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And I said that beginning with justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification, all of those items have real world, real life benefits. Adoption is no exception. It means that we've been brought into a close personal relationship with God. And though we were those rebels on death row awaiting our execution date, God pardoned us. He adopted us and brought us into his family. But it also means we also have complete and invited access to the Father. In both Romans 8 and Galatians 4, we're told that we can call, call God Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic word. And Aramaic was the everyday language of both Jesus and Paul. And Paul is the one who wrote both of these, both of these passages in Romans 8 and Galatians 4. And so he gives both Abba and Father in both passages. He says, Abba, Father, to emphasize the intimacy of the father-child relationship in his own native tongue of Aramaic. And then he translates it for the benefit of his readers who don't know Aramaic. So, Father, Abba, Father, both referring to this intimate relationship between father and child. God adopts those who believe into his family and he gives them the privilege of calling him father with access to him as a child of any loving father. Jesus prayed to his Abba, Father. He did so marvelously the night before he was crucified. John chapter 17 is in its entirety. The prayer of Jesus, the true Lord's Prayer. Sometimes we call our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We call that the Lord's Prayer. No, that's the, the disciples' prayer. That's a prayer Jesus gave them to pray. The prayer that, that the Lord prayed, the Lord's Prayer, 
is this beautiful prayer in John chapter 17. And he prayed to his Abba the night before he died. And he said there in John 17, you loved me before the creation of the world. And he also said in that prayer, you love them. Those who will believe in me, those that you have given me. Now follow this, friends. He says, you, Father, have loved me, Jesus, before the creation of the world. But he says, you have loved them, even as you have loved me. Now hear this amazing truth. Those in God's family are loved in the same way as And with the same infinite dimension with which God the Father loves God the Son. God does not treat his adopted children as second class members of his family. He loves them as he loves Christ. God the Father loves me as he loves Christ. I read those words in a book this week as we were away on this retreat. And I was profoundly moved as I considered how absolutely amazing that is. God the Father loves me as he loves Jesus. Are you amazed by that? Let's take just a moment to pause, to wonder, and to praise in prayer our God. Let's praise Him in prayer. Oh, Father, thank you that. I can call you Father. And that I am your Son. And that all who have come to you through Jesus are your sons and daughters. All adopted into your family. All of us heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And your word tells us that Jesus calls us brothers. Oh, Lord, help me to see, help us to see the great privilege that we have in you. The love that you have lavished upon us so that we could be in your family. Oh, Lord, we know how much you love the Lord Jesus. And because we are in him, you love us as you love him. And I can't fathom that. Because I am not Jesus. I am not God the Son. I am not the perfect one. But Lord, help me to see that it's not because I'm perfect. It is quite apart from my perfection. And indeed, because of my imperfection, my sin, that the perfect one came. And when I'm united to him, united in his death and in his resurrection, when we are one in Jesus, you now count us As Jesus, you now see us as a co-heir with Jesus. 
And so, Lord, help us to live that way then. Live in the joy of the fact that we are sons and daughters of God. And help us to live as well, knowing that we are to bear the family resemblance. And that you have given us your name in your family, and we are to represent you. Therefore, Lord, help us to mourn because of our sin. Not because we will be disinherited, not because we will no longer be in your family. But Lord, the last thing that any of us in your family want to do is to shame the Father. So Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Help us to be children who live accordingly. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. But there's more. And you figured that, looking at the time, that there's more. By the way, that thing says 1130. It's really only 1030 uh, right now. There's more to this. Notice that both Romans 8 that we saw earlier and Galatians 4 refer to adoption, but they refer to adoption to sonship. Again, Galatians 4, God sent his son born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, that phrase to sonship has sometimes been translated full rights of sons. Because it's not talking about adoption of an infant or small child, as is most often the case today. Rather, in the Roman culture of New Testament days, adoption referred to the practice of wealthy but childless couples adopting a worthy young man to be their heir and carry on the family name. This means that although we come into the family of God as born-again babes that need to mature We also, from minute one, have the full rights and privileges of full-grown sons and daughters. So whether we are babes in Christ or mature believers, we all have the same privilege of addressing God as Abba, Father. You all remember Jesus illustrated this marvelously with the famous parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal rebelled. As we have rebelled. And he left his home. And he spent his inheritance. And then finally the Bible tells us that he came to himself. That's the language. The young man came to himself. He realized what he was doing and what he was forfeiting. And he said to himself, I will go back to my father. And I will will beg of him to let me be one one of his slaves, one of his servants in his household. And he went back. And the Bible tells us that the father was looking. And it says he saw his son, and this is important in that story, he saw him from afar off. And the Bible says the father ran to him. And far from what that young man thought would happen, which was he would have to come and he would grovel before his father. Instead, his father ran to him and embraced him. Brought him into his home and he said, let us throw a feast because my son has returned. He orders this party to celebrate. Jesus says he gave him a robe. A robe signifying he's not a slave, but rather he's my son. And like the prodigal, we have been welcomed by the father out of slavery to sin and to Satan. And we've been clothed with the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness. 
We've been given status as sons in the royal household. So what does that mean in everyday life that God is our Father? We should be able to relate to God as our Father by looking at our relationship with our natural fathers. But unfortunately, the truth is many have not had the kind of loving and intimate relationship with their fathers that the Bible describes. So when they hear God is our Father, it's not the comfort that it should be. But of course, God is not like sinful human fathers. He is not harsh and demanding. But the Bible says rather he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Or in the words of Psalm 147. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and he calls them each by name. God creates and sustains the universe, but he's also the tender-hearted God who heals the broken and binds up their wounds. The Bible is full of these kind of fatherly images of God. Let me give some of them to you. He provides for us. That's why the great apostle could say in Philippians 4, My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He provides for us. He also protects us. Jesus asked, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He provides. He protects The Bible says he encourages us. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. The father provides and protects and encourages. The father comforts us. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. The Father, because we are His children, lovingly disciplines us. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. And the list could go on and on. The Father and His children and all that He does on their behalf. Now, I realize that there are times when it does not seem as if God is doing any of these things. There are times when it seems that he has forsaken us. Friends, if you have come to God through Jesus, then in those times, we need to remember the promises of Scripture among them. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And you see that that's in quotation marks. It's in quotation marks because it's a quotation from the first part of your Bible. It's in the second part. It's in Hebrews. But it's a quotation from the first part. You see, friends, the the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Same God. I've heard many people say, well, isn't the God of the New Testament? He's a nicer guy. Same God, same character, which never changes. And so what does it all mean then for us? 
Well, the gospel of God's grace does these things on the chart that's inserted in your program. God calls us and delivers us from the persuasion of sin. He gives us a new perspective. We are born again. He gives us spiritual life, delivering us from the power of sin so that we have a new heart. In declaring us righteous in justification, he delivers us from the penalty of sin, giving us a new record. And now in adoption, he delivers us from the position of sin and gives us a new family. You see, our position was outside of the family of God, outside of relationship with God. But in adoption, the good news of the gospel is that he gives us a new position, no longer outside his family, no longer estranged from God. He gives us a new family. As we think of this relationship to God as our heavenly father, friends, we always, always must bear in mind that we have this relationship only through Jesus Christ. It's only because of our union with Christ that we are God's children and he is our father. And so if you think of your adoption, your sonship, your daughtership to God the Father in terms of your performance, well, then you will regularly despair. But if you think of it in terms of your union with Jesus, the one who has performed, the one who has done what we should have done, But he has now done it on our behalf. If you think of it that way, you have this relationship as long, hear this, as long as Jesus does. How long is that? That's why the Bible says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, after John's exclamation that we saw earlier, that we should be called the children of God, I call your attention to 1 John 3, 1 again. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And then he adds this phrase, and that is what we are. You see, it's not just what we're called. John is amazed at that, and so the exclamation God has lavished all of this this on us so that we should be called, we should have the title children of God. But then he goes further and says, and that in fact is what we are. It's as if he's saying, it's really true. I can't believe it. (laughs) But I must believe it. And I thank God that he enables me to believe it. To believe what is otherwise incredible. That I am in the family of God and a co-heir with God the Son, the Lord Jesus. The question for us is this. It is true. But do you believe it? Do you, Christian, believe that? Do you believe in the midst of everything that is happening in your life? I'm God's child. And that in all of the circumstances that are outside of your control, in all the things that are happening to you, do you believe that God works all things together for good? For those who love him and who are called according
according to his purpose. That would be the children of God. Do you believe that in the midst of everything that's happening? And do you believe not only in the midst of everything that's happening to you, but in the midst of everything you've done? Because, of course, fallenness and living in a fallen world is not just what's done to me, though we often want to think that way, but it's actually what I do. It's not just the sin that's committed against me. It's not just the difficulties that I have to endure, but it's actually the sin that I commit in my thoughts and my words and my deeds. And in the midst of that, how do you see yourself? And a child of the Father should see his or herself as one who has the royal robe, the one who has been called to represent the Heavenly Father, and who is cut to the heart each time we fail Him. Because the great apostle said this, we make it our goal to please Him. It's not so I can get to heaven. Hear this, friends. Come what may, thanks be to God, I'm going to heaven. And why can I say that with confidence, even not knowing how I might sin next week or next month or next year? I can say it because Jesus has provided the way. I'm not going to heaven because of me. I'm not going to heaven because of how good I am. So I can tell you as I stand here November 15 of 2015, I'm going to heaven. But in the meantime, how do I view my life and how do I view my dedication to the Lord who owns me by right of creation and by right of redemption? How do I view that? I view it not as me performing so I can get there. I want to perform so I can please Him. And when I displease Him, then it should, as a child to a loving father, cut to the heart. So do you believe it? Do you each day realize that you are a child of the heavenly king? In our adoption, God calls us to live each day as the full-grown child of God that we really are through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we say at the bottom of the insert, those who believe in Jesus receive all the benefits of children of God. Now, we're going to pray in just a moment and conclude. I've spoken to those of you who are Christians in terms of how you see yourself in your relationship with God and how that practically plays itself out when, not if, we fall and fail and sin. And now in our closing moments, I want to speak to those of you who do not have a relationship with God through Jesus. The gospel is the good news. And the good news is God has undertaken on your behalf to do what you could not do for yourself. Jesus Christ, God the Son, has come to earth to live the life that you were made to live, that I was made to live. And he died on the cross not because of any sin of his own, but rather to bear the sin of the world. To bear your sin and my sin. And when we believe who Jesus is and what Jesus did, then we have a relationship with God. Then we are brought into God's family. Then these benefits that we've talked about today and will continue to talk about in the next few weeks, then those benefits flow and that difference is made. But it all begins with a relationship with Jesus 
that begins when you come to him believing, having faith in who he is and what he has done. And you turn, you turn from your own work, you turn from your own way, and you turn to Jesus and Jesus alone. And that turning the Bible calls repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I've changed my mind about who I am before God. Oh Lord, I am a sinner deserving of your punishment, your wrath. I changed my mind about who God is. God really is. And the God who really is is not my waiter to act at my beck and call, but rather he is the creator who is owed all things from his creation. I changed my mind about who God is and, and who I am. I changed my mind about sin. Sin is not just messing up. Sin is not just mistakes. Sin is cosmic treason against this holy creator. And I changed my mind about Christ. Christ is God who came as man and accomplished for me what I could never do on my own. And having changed my mind about God and myself and my sin and about Christ, I turn to him and I give myself fully to him. Then you are adopted into his family. The Bible says this, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're going to give you opportunity now to call on the name of the Lord. To bow your head and your heart before God. And to tell him in your own words, Lord, this is what I believe about you. I believe you are my savior and my only hope. I believe that I need my sin forgiven by you and only you. And so you realize you're a sinner. You recognize that Christ died for your sin. Repent. Change of mind. Leading to a change of life. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Let's bow together. Father, we praise you yet again that we are your children because we know we are only such because of you, because of your initiative, because of your love, because of sending God the Son, because of his life and his death. And God the Father and God the Son, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, God the Holy Spirit, for moving upon our hearts at a point in time so that we saw who we are and who you are and what we need. We ask you, God the Holy Spirit, in this sacred moment, to draw some to yourself, to move upon their hearts so that they see That a relationship with God is not about our performance because in our sin we can never perform. Your standard is you and you are perfect. I can never meet it. We can never meet it. Jesus has. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you're causing them to see the depths of their own sin that they could never approximate your standard of holiness. And seeing that in your love you have provided Jesus to do what they couldn't. Draw them out of the world then and to yourself. Move upon their hearts as you have upon ours at a point in time. And then as a result, they're adopted into your family and they know this new life in Christ. And then help them, help us to live as sons and daughters of the King. 
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.